0: It was the worst week ever. What was supposed to be the party of the year spiraled out of control. It turned deadly. Streets filled with laughter and celebration soon thumped with the boots of local police. The innocent were arrested without due process. What had the markings of a national revolution were tainted with the lies of the corrupt and the heavy-handed of a regime known to inflict hurt, to inflict pain. Two of the partygoers, however, escaped the city. They made it. Their lives were intact, but their hearts were crushed. They were devastated as they made the trip home in hopes of putting the previous week's events behind them. But they wouldn't be so lucky. As the men continued on the road to Emmaus, Jesus joined them. It was the day of his resurrection. It was Easter Sunday. The tomb was empty, but word hadn't spread. The men didn't recognize Jesus, and he played dumb to his involvement in the events of the past week. The two friends struggled to reconcile their discouragement and disbelief. For all they knew, the Messiah had been crucified and remained buried. Hope was lost. Yet Jesus brings hope to the hopeless. And he began to connect the dots for these men as they traveled the road. Oblivious to Christ's identity, they simply soaked up his wisdom and insight about himself. And what could happen and what could perhaps be called the essentials of Jesus. In this series called Essentials, we are looking at the core beliefs of South Suburban and how they impact our lives as a church family. We pull these beliefs from the Word of God, our foundation for life and worship of our Lord. It's our understanding of the Creator and the relationship we have as the created. And last week, we began a three part mini series, if you will, looking at the Godhead we've called the Trinity. It's not a word that's found in Scripture, but it's a concept articulated in Scripture. And though it's a difficult concept to grasp in many ways, Pastor Joe's example of Neapolitan ice cream was fabulous and at least left me hungry. Um, I won't tell you what I went and ate when I went to the store that week, but anyway, we all have our issues and vices. There are three unique parts of the ice cream, but still only one ice cream. We have God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three distinctions of god and we looked at mark chapter one verses nine through 11 it's the story of jesus's water baptism and we saw the baptism there in the snapshot of the trinity we looked at this last week and the father seals his approval of jesus with the holy spirit all three members of the godhead were present and distinct Yet we can easily miss that the ministry of Jesus hadn't even started yet. Jesus hadn't done anything, and he had already won his Father's heart. We can't miss that fact. That God is more interested in who you are than what you do. So who is this Jesus? Is he just a good man? Is he just a fleshly part of the Trinity that we're trying to get our minds around? Well, that's the question of the day. And so much is written about Jesus, and it's trying to figure out how do you take this infinite God? And that was kind of the, the, the question I had for our staff when, throughout the week. was like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, There's a lot to talk about when it comes to God, and I've only got like 30 minutes. So now I've got about 60 minutes. Just kidding. (laughs) You guys don't know me well enough. No, but who is this Jesus? And it's a challenging question. When one considers the proposition that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, John 1, 1, many of us know this verse, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is all, often noted as being the Word, because when you fast forward to verse 14, it's John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the grace and truth of our Heavenly Father was embodied in the person of Jesus as He walked amongst us. As we read the Scriptures and see the life and testimony of Jesus, we see it played out in the day-to-day life of Christ. Jesus did not fudge on calling sin, sin. Yet always did so with the embrace of grace. Our last series was spent on looking at the encounters of Christ. Little snapshots in which when Jesus, when God, (laughs) as Jesus, walked the earth, the impact that he made in people's lives, and time again when he came across someone who didn't know the truth, but yet was still steeped in sin, again, he didn't pull punches. He called sin, sin, but he was so quick to forgive. Who is, the, who is Jesus the most critical of? The church. Those of us that have known the truth and don't do what it says. Who have made it Jesus plus. Who have added to the gospel, added to God's expectations. Those are the ones that he's most critical of. And it's a warning for us as a congregation that we can know a lot about God but miss out on knowing God. And we can think that we're doing the right thing and drift away from the truth of God's word. But there's also the truth of God's grace that when we repent, when we change, when we correct He is there with open arms, ready and willing to embrace us. We also see that Jesus Jesus came from humble origins and a miracle birth. It was an amazing story that we usually just focus on during Christmas time. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. His first onesie wasn't from Jamboree. It was a set of burial clothes, foreshadowing what was to come. So why a virgin birth? Why was such a miraculous beginning necessary? Well, for starters, it represented that the salvation of humanity wasn't going to come from man's efforts. Christ's authority and victory wasn't going to come from man-made titles, nor thrones established atop of wars of this world, there is a bigger battle in play. Rather, God's solution to bridge the chasm created by our sin would come from the most peculiar and unexpected of places. That's often how God works. Behind the scenes, out of the limelight, He is looking for us to simply make ourselves available to His plans and His purposes. And God's plan was for Jesus to be the sinless Savior. He's a sinless Savior. For Christ's death on the cross to be of any value, he had to be sinless. For the wages of sin is death. Maybe you're familiar with that verse. That's what's on our W-2. We sin, we earn death. We weren't originally created to die, but that's the consequence of our sinfulness. However, for Jesus, there was no W-2 with death in box one. As it says in 1 Peter 2, verses 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Because Jesus was sinless, his physical death couldn't be attributed towards any wrongs he had committed. He didn't earn that penalty. And so therefore, he could die As a perfect substitution for our sins. As the Word of God says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sin has a cost and it must be paid. When we look at Jesus in Scripture, we also see him as a groom, and the church as a bride, the bride of Christ. And one of the ways that I would describe Christ is as the groom, and He is a groom that is preparing for His bride. And this imagery will become even more poignant when we talk about what Jesus did in just a few moments, while He, what He did with us, and what He intends to do upon His return. So, what did Jesus do? He did a lot. In case you missed it, He did a lot a lot of it's recorded there in the Gospels, but as we mentioned that there is so much in prophecy, and there are different little spots in time where we see what looks to be the Son of God showing up. We need to first of all understand that Jesus was a fulfillment of over 300 Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled prophecy. It wasn't an accident. The coming of Christ was an integral part of our Heavenly Father's plan. And in fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, with the fall of Adam and Eve, we see allusions to Christ's victory over Satan and the gift that Jesus would be to all of humanity. Christ among us, Emmanuel, God with us, was a part of plan A the whole time. God didn't have a backup plan He doesn't need one. He's got it figured out if we will trust him. And Christ's death on the cross was a part of that plan. Because you see, Jesus also broke the power of sin and death. Let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. It's a long verse. We'll have it up on the screen, but it encapsulates it all. He says, since we have been united with him in his death, We will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. And he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So that you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin. And alive to God through Christ Jesus. Some of you need to reread that. you are alive in Christ Jesus. Though our physical bodies may experience a physical death, our our spirits can experience the life our Creator designed for us. Though we may struggle with temptation and the sin of this world, we can have the ultimate victory through Christ Jesus. We do not need to be content with the attacks of the enemy nor the lies of the Father of Lies. We can live in freedom if we desire. Jesus also paid the debt our sin incurred. He paid our debt. He stepped in and made it possible for us to be righteous before the Father. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did what we were unqualified to do and extends that grace to every person who will put their faith and trust in him. That's how it works. Last week when we were talking about our heavenly father, when we had to remember That love does. Jesus is that expression of God's love for us. He loves us immensely. He loves us intensely. And I did not mean for that to rhyme. Wow. (laughs) Going off notes. But Jesus said that the only way to the Father was through Him, there was no other way. Nothing man-made, no other belief system. It doesn't work that way. And we always like to have some sort of golden parachute for our souls. But Christ said, this is the parachute. To put our faith and trust in Him. And I've got loved ones that have passed away and never did that. I've got loved ones that are still walking this earth and have yet to do that. And it can feel good in my heart to think that maybe they're just good enough. Maybe God will give them a pass. But God is not a liar. He will not say in His Word one thing and then do something different in reality. I cannot fool myself into thinking that these relatives of mine these friends of mine have to make a choice on this side of eternity I cannot fool myself into thinking that there's going to be some other way my Lord, my Savior has already said that he is the only way to the Father this simply means I've got work to do and if you're like most folks in America or many folks in America, we've got kids and grandkids that have turned away from God or never even knew Him. We've got grandparents that once knew the Lord or at least went to church and they know about God, but they don't know God. And we've got work to do. We've got work to do. A sign in a Christmas store read, One day of coal, 364 days of fun, I'll take my chances. And some people adopt this kind of attitude towards God's grace. But the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Should we keep on sinning that grace may abound? We weren't created to sin. We were created to live. And that kind of logic that God's forgiven me, I can just go do whatever I want to, is misleading and misguiding. You see, Christ wants us to live, not just to live, but to live abundantly. One of the things that Christ did is he demonstrated the abundant life. He showed us how to do it. He was a real deal. He walked this earth... Fully God, yet fully man. I don't believe that Jesus was omniscient. He didn't know everything. Because he put himself into the form of a man. You can't be fully man without turning some of that stuff off. Without, I'll say dumb it down, if you will but he was in tune with his heavenly father. He listened to his heavenly father. How do you kill God? Well, God took the form of fully, being fully man. And he lowered himself, as the scriptures say, below angels for a time. Jesus struggled. His dad was a carpenter, so conceivably, he learned the trade. What happened last time? You hit your thumb with a hammer. But Jesus was sinless. When he was mocked, when he was ridiculed, he was sinless. You see, Jesus demonstrated abundant living in his desire for all of us to experience it as well. Let's read John 10.10. You see, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus paved the way for us to have a full life, one filled with joy and wholeness, one filled with the doting, doting of a heavenly Father who loves each of us immensely. We would be wise to ask ourselves, what's my life like? Does it have the markings of a loving father or the blemishes of sin? Do I live in the freedom Christ paid to make available? What is our life filled with? And lastly, but certainly not finally, when we look at what Jesus did, we see that he left. Yeah, Jesus left to prepare for the wedding and the promised return. Jesus said he had to go. Marriage customs looked very different in biblical times and in Jewish culture. It started with the groom's father selecting a bride and then negotiating the price needed to be paid for that bride. The father would then send the son to the bride's home to make a payment. And once that payment was made, the bride and groom were considered betrothed. It was more than just an engagement that could be called off. For all intents and purposes, the two were considered married, just without the joys of the honeymoon. The son would then return home to prepare a place for the bride. And in the end, it was up to the father to decide when the preparations had been made and to send the son back to the bride. Even the son didn't know the appointed time. When Jesus said he was leaving to prepare a place for us, he was using this wedding analogy. His followers later define, his followers, later defined as the church and the bride of Christ, would have understood the implications when Paul writes that we are no longer our own, but we were bought with a price. he was referencing the debt Christ as the groom paid for his bride. The covenant have been established and paid for. Jesus is coming back for his church. And as a church, as the bride, it is our responsibility to remain faithful to the groom and prepare ourselves, sanctify ourselves for his return. This only scratches scratches the surface of what Jesus actually did. Yet it paints a broad picture of his plan and purpose for becoming Emmanuel, God with us. So where is Jesus now? I've spent a good part of my career in children's ministries as a children's pastor. And I've heard all sorts of interesting theology when it comes to trying to explain things to kids. How many of you guys have heard about asking Jesus into your heart? Right? You've heard that phrase? Do you know what that does to a (laughs) seven-year-old? Like... So we need to make some distinctions here. We need to make some corrections here. We do have one God, and the Father is not Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is not the one who hung on the cross. The Spirit of God can be everywhere, but Jesus only in one place, confined by flesh. And the book of the books of Luke and Acts record the physical ascension of Jesus into the clouds 40 days after his resurrection. In the books of Mark and 1 Peter, state that Jesus is seated in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, symbolizing Christ's authority and honor. At the martyrdom of Stephen, he has a vision prior to his death and sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father as well. So where is Jesus? He's seated in heaven. In fact, not only is Jesus seated in the heaven, but he is also interceding for us. He is advocating on our behalf to the Father. When the accuser wants to spotlight our sins from years ago or minutes ago, Christ is there verifying the penalty has already been paid and those sins cannot be held against us. John told his disciples, or Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that he was going to make preparations for us. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. With an understanding of the traditions of the Jewish wedding arrangements, this language makes sense. Yet it is my opinion that God, that the God who spoke the universe into existence with mere words does not need some 2,000... Or who spoke the spoke the universe into existence with mere words, does not need some 2,000 years to physically build apartment buildings or mansions in heaven. I'm just not picturing Jesus with a car heart and a hard hat. However, one of the wedding traditions I did not mention was the groom's gift to the bride. After the contract was struck, the price paid and the groom returning to his father the groom would give his bride-to-be a gift for when he returned. This gift was an expression of his love for her while he was gone making those preparations. And as Jesus was leaving, he told his followers to wait in Jerusalem for a gift, the groom's gift, an invaluable gift of power to help prepare the bride in his absence. This gift was the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, though Christ may not be with us in flesh, the presence of God is with us wherever we're at. We can't escape him. We really don't want to. We are never alone from the presence of God that pursues us, that loves us. Romans 8 says it well. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, fully God, fully man, fully in love with us. As the men walked with Jesus and digested all of what he had shared, they reached Emmaus. They invited Jesus to join them for dinner, and he accepted. It was when Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave thanks that their eyes were open to the identity of Christ. It was the best week ever. The party of the year seemed to spiral out of control and turn deadly. Two of the partygoers escape from the city, their lives intact and their hearts filled with hope. As we transition to a time of response and communion, I want you to approach it a little differently. Pray that your eyes would be opened like these men in Emmaus. Pray that you would see your life and your situation in the same way that God sees you, filled with hope that comes from Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Son, Your Holy Son, that He would die and pay the ultimate price for our sins. God, I pray that You would open up our eyes to how You see us as a Heavenly Father. Lord, so many times we can get distracted by our sinfulness. So many times we can get beat down by our mistakes or even the words and labels of others. But you see us as redeemed. You see us as alive in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to live up to those expectations. Help us to live a life the way you see us living, obedient to your plans and purposes. For God, there is not a single person in this room. Who can escape your love? Who can escape your grace? And so God, today as we step into this response time, as we tear off, take some bread, drink from a cup, help us to remember you, amen.